Hello and welcome to the Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage here on Monaco Radio. This week, we explore the culinary soft power of Japan. It was 100% the, the simplicity. I'm trained in a, in a French kitchen where you can, you can always add on, and you want to add on, you want to put more f- deep flavors in the sauce, you want more thyme, more garlic, or like you built. And then uh, in the Japanese kitchen, you try to remove. Plus, Andrew Muller explains the history of Hezbollah. The name is a contraction of the Arabic Hezbollah Allah, or Party of God. Hezbollah's emblem depicts a clenched fist emerging from one letter of the organization's name to grasp a Kalashnikov rifle. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start on the show with a foreign desk explainer this week, where Andrew Muller explains the history of Hezbollah and why it's claiming a stake in the conflict with Israel. It is a truism of history that fighting on two fronts is a situation best avoided. It is a pickle that presently potentially confronts Israel. We begin with breaking news in the Israel-Hamas war and reports that one of Hamas's top commanders has been killed. It is clear enough that Israel intends to destroy Hamas, the Gaza-based Islamist organization which perpetrated the hideous pogrom of October 7th in which at least 1,400 people were killed. But as Israel seeks to remove this menace wedged next to its southern border with Egypt, Israel and its allies are clearly and correctly concerned with the threat just beyond Israel's northern border with Lebanon, Hezbollah. If Hezbollah decides to enter the war, they will be making the biggest mistake of their lives, and we will hit them with an unimaginable force. This past weekend, following several engagements between Hezbollah and Israel Defense Force positions, Israel ordered the evacuation of Kiryat Shmona, a town of some 23,000 people in Israel's north, a very short rocket flight from Lebanon. Among those who chose to stay, at least two have been reported injured by shrapnel from Hezbollah missiles. The question of the degree to which Hezbollah really wants to join Hamas's fight is an open one. Certainly, Israel's most powerful ally is determined to help Hezbollah answer it. Shortly after October 7th, the United States ordered the USS Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier strike group to the eastern Mediterranean. This additional deployment sends another message to those who would seek to widen this conflict and take advantage of this very unfortunate situation that we see. Our advice is don't. It is depressingly plausible that Hezbollah interpreted this as a compliment to their clout. The question of who Hezbollah are and how they have come to exert such a grip on Lebanon and an influence on the region is somewhat easier to address. Hezbollah coalesced in the 1980s during Lebanon's interminable civil war, originally as a Shia militia heavily backed by the newish revolutionary regime of Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran. Their animating purpose was the reversal of Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 1982, a victory Hezbollah claimed when Israel eventually withdrew from Lebanon in 2000. 
The name is a contraction of the Arabic Hezbollah Allah, or Party of God. Hezbollah's emblem depicts a clenched fist emerging from one letter of the organization's name to grasp a Kalashnikov rifle. Along the length of the weapon runs the Quranic, quote, Then surely the party of God are they that shall be triumphant. Beneath the logo is the sub-billing, the Islamic resistance in Lebanon. Rendered in green on gold and considered purely on its own merits, it is an arresting piece of graphic design and features on souvenirs widely available in Lebanon and Syria. Flags, baseball caps, key rings and friendship bracelets. Israel. Hezbollah's principal founder, the Shia cleric Abbas al-Musawi, was killed in 1992 when his motorcade was hit by missiles launched from Israeli helicopters. But for all the risks associated with being a visible member of any group which sets itself against Israel, or indeed just participates in Lebanese politics, Hezbollah's leadership since has been remarkably stable. Secretary-General Hassan Nasrallah has been in office for 31 years, as has his deputy, Sheikh Naim Qasem. They have overseen the establishment of a relatively competent parallel state in chronically dysfunctional Lebanon. In the largely Shia districts of South Beirut and southern Lebanon, Hezbollah operates schools, hospitals, clinics for its disabled veterans and many other social services and a formidable media apparatus. Lebanon's most recent general election, in 2022, returned 13 Hezbollah members to parliament. But Hezbollah's legitimacy among its adherents is derived principally from Hezbollah's military prowess. Hezbollah are fond of claiming to be the only Arab force ever to have defeated Israel on the battlefield not only enforcing the 2000 withdrawal from Lebanon, but in fighting Israel to an inconclusive standstill in a 34-day war in 2006. When I visited Lebanon the following year, the road from Beirut's airport was lined with triumphant Hezbollah billboards. Hezbollah's present military strength is unclear. Nasrallah's claims of 100,000 fighters under arms is nigh certainly an exaggeration, but they are well equipped with drones, rockets and air defence systems, and hardened by years of fighting on Iran's behalf in the civil war next door in Syria. Radwan is believed to number around 2,500 fighters, accounting for about 5% of Hezbollah's total assessed manpower. Its operatives appear to be far more capable than your average Hezbollah fighter, with training provided by the Sabarine commandos. This broadcaster spent a bit of time with Hezbollah in Lebanon in 2001 and 2002, meeting foot soldiers, party workers and officials, including Deputy Secretary-General Qasem, to whom I was driven in bewildering circles in the back of a blacked-out Mercedes. I found them to be neither fanatical nor foolish. They took me on a tour of former Israeli bases in southern Lebanon, now repurposed as a sort of Hezbollah heritage trail, complete with plaques explaining the significance of each position. We also stopped by the notorious prison at Hiyam, where Hezbollah guerrillas once held and tortured in its miserable cells by Israel's Lebanese proxies, now showed visitors around and sent them away with gift bags stuffed with Party of God merchandise. 
As Sheikh Qasem cheerfully confirmed even at the time, Hezbollah have long had an amount of contact with Hamas, both groups willing to overlook the traditional Shia-Sunni sectarian rancor in the service of their mutual grudge against Israel. But it would be an error to assume that Hamas and Hezbollah are basically the same thing. Hamas, especially in recent years, have self-evidently evolved into a theocratic death cult which regards the mass murder of Jews as an end in itself. Hezbollah are many bad things, but they're not crazy. They may, therefore, be even more dangerous. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. You are listening to The Curator, Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Creating human-centric cities was at the heart of almost every single discussion at Utopian Hours, and one of the ways to do so is by reclaiming street space back from cars. This was the starting point for the podcast Turn Movement, War on Cars. Focused on mobility and car culture, particularly in the US, it brings to life the livable streets movement, advocating for a better way to organize our roads and shared spaces. Monaco's Carlotta Rebelo caught up with its host and co-founder, Doug Gordon to learn more. When we started, we kind of felt that we were like the weirdos, especially in the US, of like, who are you radicals and your idea, you urban elites who think everybody can get around on bicycles and the subway? What if I live in a place where there's none of those things, right? And now we don't feel quite as weird. We've grown an audience and the issues outside of the podcast have just become bigger now, whether it's climate change or COVID or changing people's understanding of how streets could be used with outdoor dining, for example. We feel like the movement has just grown up around us as well. So it's been fun. And I collaborate with Aaron Napperstek, who is a founding editor of Streets Blog, and Sarah Goodyear, who also worked for Streets Blog, but she's written for City Lab and lots of great publications. And they both bring, I'm more of an activist, Aaron is too, but Sarah and Aaron both bring like a journalistic perspective to these issues as well. Do you find that the conversation about taking the space back from cars in cities is still a hard conversation to have in the US? I'm quite curious from your perspective, how do those take shape? I live in New York City and I live in the most walkable, transit-rich, bikeable neighborhood in New York City, which makes it probably the best neighborhood for those things in the United States. And even there, we have to fight over every single parking space. In a neighborhood where like 60% of people don't own cars, and of the people who own cars, they don't use them for daily transportation. But you try to put in a school street or bicycle parking, and it's a slog. It is a war. And it's hard. And it's a cultural battle, which I think maybe makes our podcast unique because we're approaching cars as a cultural problem that needs to be solved as much as a policy-based one. To get people to change habits is difficult, but even more difficult when you have cities that are, do not have the infrastructure to provide the alternative. And that's where this balance really lies, is yeah. if you want to convince people to give up their automobile for daily commute, there needs to be a viable alternative. And that's not always the case. No. And you see how difficult it is in New York City, where there are viable alternatives to driving in most neighborhoods. There are transit deserts. There are communities that don't have as much access as like I do living in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. And then you throw that out to Detroit, Houston, Atlanta, even Los Angeles, which is doing some things to improve transit and improve their streets. And it's true. I think the hard thing is separating the good faith 
opposition from the bad. The person who really is car dependent because there is no other option versus the person who says, I'm not going to give up my car until you give me another option. Well, would you like a bus lane on your street? No. You know, and we deal with that a lot. That's why, like I said, it's a cultural problem that's harder to solve. A lot of this transformation can begin by citizens taking action. And you mentioned a take you did on the Department of Transportation and called it the Department of Transformation to exactly deploy some of these uh, almost activist solutions to change the way the road is used. Tell me a bit more about that project. Yeah, so I'm outing myself a little bit as I did at the audience here in Turin. But there was a bike lane on Christie Street, which if your listeners are familiar with Manhattan, was a, is a major entry and exit for cyclists coming off the Manhattan Bridge and for drivers as well. And there was a painted bike lane on both sides of the street and it was regularly parked up by cars and blocked. It was really dangerous. Many people were injured. Someone was killed there. And there was a plan to fix it. And it just languished in bureaucratic hell, as these things do. Fears of losing parking, just the nature of bureaucracy, whatever it was, it wasn't happening. But we knew the plan existed. And, you know, I think a lot of times you hear people say, you can't put a bike lane on that street because how will people with disabilities access the curb? How will businesses receive deliveries? How will people find a place to park? Whatever it is. And, and so much of our debate happens on like a PDF with a cross section of the street that people can't see. They can't imagine it. And so it becomes this void into which all fears, legitimate or not, get sucked. So we, I and some activists, created a group called the Department of Transformation. We literally just put a little tiny R next to the DOT logo. We went out and we were inspired by the work of Jonathan Fertig, and who was then in Boston, now in Denver, some other people. We put 25 traffic cones and we blocked off a bike lane so drivers couldn't park there. We put flowers in the cones, sunflowers, so that it would look intentional and people wouldn't think, oh, this is some random construction project. Also to make it fun, as I mentioned in the talk I did, you know, cycling, we talk a lot about safety and avoiding death and injury, but cycling should be fun. It's efficient, it's green, but you should feel good when you do it. Like it shouldn't feel like a chore or dangerous. So we put these flowers in to give it that element of whimsy. And we said, boom, we did it. It costs like $500 worth of materials, 25 minutes worth of our time, five people. There's no reason the city can't do this with much more resources, more money, more people. And the only thing stopping it is political will and bureaucracy. So get it done. And now a highlight from my show, The Stack. I had the pleasure to speak with Michael Famigetti. He is the editor of Aperture, a leading voice in the world of photography. We also discussed their brand new issue about Accra in Ghana. Aperture has a long history. I have a long history with Aperture, too. I've been the editor of the magazine since 2013, but I had worked at Aperture before that as a book editor and as the managing editor under a previous editor. And I had left for a while and then came back to work on a relaunch and redesign of the magazine in 2013. Aperture has this incredible history. It was founded in 1952 by a group of artists and thinkers, including Ansel Adams and Minor White and Dorothea Lange, great photographers of the mid-20th century. Their mission was to create a space for photographers to talk to one another, to create a platform for thinking seriously about photographs at a time when photography wasn't necessarily considered a legitimate creative form of art. 
So we have this amazing history. I like to think that we honor and learn from while evolving as the medium evolves. Photography is an interesting art form in that it's bound to technology. So it's always changing. You know, the forms are changing, the modes of distribution are changing. And our job is really to kind of reflect on those changes, uh, make sense of what's happening in photography, but also the way that photography reflects the world and shapes our thinking about the world. And Michael, I know when you started working at the magazine, you did a few changes in the title. And I have to say, it looks amazing. I have the latest issue here uh, about Accra. And I think, to be honest, it makes perfectly sense, a magazine about photography to be beautiful. But it is very beautiful. And I know every issue you know, there's a special content. For example, this time is Accra, but I have one here, being and becoming Asian in America. Was it always like this? Uh, when did the special theme started in the magazine? Aperture has had themes in the past, and then it didn't have themes for a long time. So when we did the redesign and editorial rethinking of the magazine about a decade ago, we decided to bring back themes because we just felt like as a quarterly magazine, we're somewhere between a magazine and a book. And we felt like a theme gave us a way to just set up an architecture or container of ideas or to pose a question about something happening in photography or happening in the world that we could kind of think about through photography. Sometimes it's good to have a constraint too, to help you organize your ideas and thinking. But I always, when people ask us what themes we decide to do, my usual answer is I feel like, you know, good editors, good curators, you know, you're listening to artists, you're listening to writers, and you have your antenna up and you're trying to figure out what people are talking about and what they're engaging through the work that they're making. So usually a theme will start because we see a group of artists working around an idea and we see some kind of commonality and then we can kind of start to build the structure out from there. But an issue like Accra, that actually was proposed to us by a really wonderful artist we've worked with over the years named Lyle Ashton Harris, who's based in New York, but he actually lived in Accra for many years. He's a professor here at NYU, but NYU also has a campus in Accra, and he was living there for you know about eight years. And he suggested that we think about Ghana as a location to focus on. And, you know, our response was, well, we focus on cities, not countries, but Accra could be an interesting location for us to delve into. The original impetus from Lyle also came from the fact that an American photographer named Paul Strand, really important photographer, has had a close connection in the past to Aperture. We actually control the rights to his archive, but he was invited to go to Ghana in the early 1960s on the invitation of Kwame Nkrumah, who was the first president of an independent Ghana in the post-colonial moment. And Nkrumah was inviting you know, many artists and thinkers and people to the country, but he invited Paul Strand to come and make photographs of Ghana to kind of celebrate and highlight the people in the place and you know what was happening there in terms of creativity and ingenuity and just the thriving culture in that post-colonial moment. So there was this nice connection between something in Aperture's past related to Accra and Ghana. So from that conversation, we decided to focus on an issue that engages people like Paul Strand to some degree, but is really focused mostly on what's happening in Accra on the ground now in terms of the creative community there. And 
So that issue actually is also, there's an editor based in Accra named Neo Bodai, who is a photographer, real kind of steward of the photography scene in Ghana, has done so much to mentor young photographers and create spaces and platforms for young photographers. So Lyle and Neo were really instrumental in helping us shape this and opening up their contacts for us. And tell us uh, about some of the highlights of the Accra issue. I mean, there's, there are quite a few, I have to say. There's some really interesting thing about the LGBT clubs in Ghana, mm-hmm. which, I, again, I had no idea. But again, beautiful photography. But what, what else can you highlight? I mean, there's so many, so it's hard to choose. But just to highlight a few, we love the interview format. You know, I really love an interview that kind of reads like you're just eavesdropping on a great conversation between two incredible people. So I think two examples in there are Echo Ishan and Zora Opoku's conversation about Zora Opoku's work. And Zora, she's half Ghanaian, half German, but has lived in Ghana for a long time now. So her work is really engaged with Ghana and place, but also thinking through questions of the diaspora. And then there's a great interview with the legendary artist, John Akamfra. That's a really rich conversation about the scope of his work. And of course, he'll be representing the UK at the next Venice Biennale. I had the pleasure of visiting Accra to research this issue last November. And I went, or I guess it was late October into early November. And I had the pleasure of going to a conference there that was focused on a range of conversations around contemporary culture and politics in Ghana. And there were a number of people who I met there who ended up as contributors to the issue. But I also connected with a number of people running archives there. And so at the University of Ghana, there's this amazing archive, the Nikitia Archive, that has an uh, incredible archive related to music and high, the genre of high life in particular. But they also have an amazing photo archive. So we have this one piece in the issue that looks at different archives and the way, you know, just the importance of caring for and preserving archives as a way of telling histories of, of culture and identity. Part of that feature is a studio called the Deo Gratias Studio, a studio operating in Ghana, in Accra, for a hundred years. They're making pictures of weddings to covering, or maybe making people's passport photos to covering significant events, like the Queen of England coming to visit Ghana during colonial times. The privilege of coming into contact with work like that, that I would never you know, it would never happen over email, even, you know, like you have to go to these places, meet with people, look at things in person. And I think that's something really special that we were able to offer through this issue. But also being introduced to a number of the younger artists in the issue as well, like Carlos Sedun Tawia, who's on the cover of the issue. And he's somebody working between fashion and art and editorial. He's making work that profiles subcultures and fashion trends in Ghana. But his work is in dialogue with these incredible photographers from the 1960s, like Malik Sidibe and Sedu Keita, um, these legends of studio portraiture from West Africa. So one of my favorite things I think about the issue is just this dialogue between the past and the present. But then concerning the present, yes, there's the Frankie Endosia 
piece about the LGBT community, which unfortunately is facing a lot of opposition right now and, you know, a lot of legislation that is really restricting or attacking the queer community in Ghana. So that's a reflection on just the importance of queer spaces within the city as well in a in a context right now politically that makes a lot of people unsafe. And Michael, I want to ask you as well, perhaps a more general question, you might disagree with me, but how much space do you think print media in general, magazines, perhaps newspapers, are giving to photography? Because I feel sometimes I do miss when reading certain titles, and I'm not talking just the biannuals, to have more space to photography dedicated to a work. Some magazines do well. I see a lot of magazines in France doing that, uh, but I'm missing that a little bit. I love, you know, like I think anyone who works in magazines, this kind of, you look back at mid-century magazines that are, they're large format, many pages and beautiful reproductions. Yeah, I mean, I I think we we live in an age of, you know, incredible, incredibly shrinking magazines, but I do think niche or kind of Mm -hmm. focused magazines have a role of reaching dedicated audiences. And I think that's where that question of community comes in, because I think that's the only way magazines like Aperture survive is by building and sustaining an engaged community around us. But I think you're right. I think especially with newspaper magazines, you see them getting smaller, even magazines like Vanity Fair, which is known for, has a great history of photography. Um, But I do think you see a lot of independent, smaller magazines that really double down on print and it's expensive to produce magazines. So it's not easy. But I do think photographers make prints often still, you know, not all photographs are disembodied JPEGs floating around the internet. So the physical connection to a print object, I think is like a real thing. I don't know, personally, I'm always trying to like get off screens now. So I don't really read books on my Kindle anymore. I want physical books because I just want to get away from screens. So we spend a lot of time thinking about materials and reproduction. We spend a lot of time on reproduction. And I think that's one thing that photographers appreciate. I hope working with us is that they know that we're going to do our best to make sure that the reproduction of the image is as close to what they envision the work to be. That fidelity to the original is there. You are listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco Radio, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Now, this year marks the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War, and while many of us are aware of the brutal violence and sectarian tensions which beset the country during the U.S. occupation, it is rare to hear stories that focus on the human lives of those living within the conflict. That's what inspired director Maysun Pachachi to create Our River, Our Sky. The film is set in Baghdad in 2006 and explores the everyday bravery of the victims of war whose collective stories are punctuated with the destruction of their beloved home. Monaco's Monica Lillis sat down with Maysoon in the studio ahead of the film's UK release to find out more. The film is a collective story, really. It's an ensemble film of intersecting stories which play out over the last week of 2006 in Baghdad in Iraq. This was a time of intense sectarian violence. You left the house in the morning and you never knew know whether you were going to come back alive or not. And somehow you had to find a way of kind of renewing a sense of fragile hope every day. They got you out of bed and out the door to do what you needed to do. 
And I was interested in um, really focusing on the lives of people rather than um, the blood in the streets and the, you know, the occupation, the American occupation and all that. This, it takes place three years after the uh, invasion of Iraq, the US-led invasion of Iraq. Because I think in war stories or war zones, where people are largely portrayed as victims, if there's any sympathy for them at all. And that's a kind of abstraction. It makes it very difficult for an audience to kind of relate to those people. You know, they, they can feel sorry for them or whatever, but they don't identify with them. And I was very keen to really just present the characters as characters trying to live a normal life in very extraordinary circumstances and, and dangerous circumstances. And the basic structure of the film is quite different from usual films. It doesn't have a main central character with a main central story and everything else serves that. It's not like that. Everybody's story is important. I didn't want the kind of hierarchy where this was the hero or the heroine and everybody else was kind of marginal. So that's the story. And Our River, Our Sky comes really out of the dialogue of one of the characters who, when her child is at school and, and the bus driver, the school bus driver, has been killed, she realizes that she needs to think about their safety. You know, she's been fooling herself, you know, preventing her child from going out onto the street by herself because a lot of kids were getting kidnapped then and so forth and uh, and keeping the news from her, not allowing her to watch television and all of this business. Um, but actually the child knows a lot more than she lets on to her mother because she's trying to protect her mother. And uh, when this business happens, when the bus driver, the school bus driver gets killed, that character, Sarah, who's a writer, decides she should investigate leaving the country. And at the end of it, she takes her child to the river in Baghdad, the Tigris River, which is the first time that the child has seen the river and so forth. And they decide that, no, they're going to stay in this country. They're not going a place, even if it uh, doesn't have snipers and it doesn't have bombs and it doesn't have... They don't, this is theirs. It's their river, their streets, their, their houses, their palm trees. They're staying. Yeah. So it's our river, our sky. You talk about the human stories behind war, and I think that is particularly poignant, you know, given mm-hmm. what's happening in the world at the moment. Could you just go into a little bit more detail about how important it is, not just for you, for this film, but for other filmmakers, to tell stories behind war without depicting bloodshed? For me, what's really important about it is that you're not just depicting people as victims. I mean, what you see on the news, for example, is the aftermath of a bomb blast and a mother beating her chest and crying for her son, and who is she, and who is the boy who died? You don't know, you never hear these things. And so it's difficult to to relate. It's difficult to relate to people. So my aim, if you like, in this is to portray people, ordinary people like us, but happen to be caught up in these circumstances that are different, different. And what I've had as a response from a lot of audiences is I found myself thinking, well, what would I do if I was in that situation? And this business of being able to actually put yourself in the shoes of other people I think is really important Mm. Uh, because sometimes it seems like, oh, well, they have wars over there, but we're not like that. You know, it's an othering, which is crazy. And yes, it's particularly relevant at the moment. Mm. This special release marks the 20th anniversary of um, the occupation of Iraq. 
what do you hope this new kind of renewed international release of the film will tell audiences about that time? Well, I think, you know, when the shooting stops, I mean, if you're sitting here in London, you might be, and you might have been on the demonstrations that were against the war, but it was waged anyway. You never get to hear what happened in a war that was carried out in your name as a British citizen, for example. So, and people, and when the shooting stops, they think, well, okay, it's, everything's okay. It's not okay. There is a, an aftermath. The society is completely disrupted and connections between people, I mean, hist- connections between people, people who've lived all their life next to somebody from another religion or whatnot, all of that got shattered. And so people were, it was like a wrecking ball was taken to the whole society. And um, it's like, I often sort of say what Iraq became after that was like a a mirror you're holding, it slips out of your hands and it shatters into hundreds of pieces. And if you're lucky, you can stick it back together again into the shape of the mirror, but it's fractured. And that's that's what Iraq is like, was like in this time. And it still is. I mean, I was there in... Last time I was there was in March last year to show the film and also to give some workshops, documentary film work- workshops. The young people are amazing. I mean, there was a massive uprising in 2019 which uh, against corruption, against foreign intervention in the country and, and so forth. Largely started by young people, but joined by everybody in Iraq, different and different religions, different sects, from the countryside, from the cities and so forth, widespread all over the place. And there was still some of that feeling of of power, empowerment that people felt that, that well this is this is our country. This is our country, you know. I met lots and lots of people who had new projects, you know, they were opening art galleries and places and meeting places where poetry got read and you know, other kinds of, well, initiatives, really. And and it was people, you know, younger people who were doing this. And that's what gives me hope. The writer and editor Seb Emina and the artist and composer Daniel Jones have long been fascinated by the medium of radio. A few years ago, they launched a streaming service called Global Breakfast Radio, which transports you to a radio station whenever in the world the sun is rising, creating an audio mosaic of other people's mornings. Now they've collaborated again on a new project called Five Radio Stations. It seeks to answer the question, if it's easier than ever to create a radio station, how might an artist exploit that? As the title suggests, five artists have been commissioned to create radio stations around the globe, all broadcasting online. One of them was created by Seb and Daniel and reports on daily goings on around the world, but not quite in the way that we are used to. The duo tell us more about their streaming art project and why radio is such an important and unique platform. Five radio stations. It's a, it's a project that was commissioned by a French art fund, which is called La Belle or Laboratoire Artistique. Working with the artistic director, Sylvia Guerra, I co-curated a series of artworks, which are also radio stations. So you go onto the website, fiveradiostations.com, and when you click play on any of them, you will hear the same thing that everyone else who is listening will hear. They are streamed as live. Community interviews. So there are five artists involved. 
Our officers have been interviewing a New York-based artist named Karen Sita to gather any information that may assist in understanding the circumstances surrounding the disappearance. An Icelandic musician-artist named Benedict Hermansen. There's a piece by a duo named Heilerzerk Desires. Its torso tremors. It shakes sharply. A well-known Nigerian artist based in Berlin named Imeke Ogbo. And then the fifth station is a creation by uh, Daniel, who's here, and myself, and it's called Infraordinary FM. You're listening to Infraordinary FM, the global information service, broadcasting online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So Infraordinary FM delivers real-time information about commonplace, everyday happenings from around the world. For example, a bird has been sighted in Ulaanbaatar or in Namibia, it is now noon or somebody got a new high score on the 007 pinball machine in the Panther Lounge in Pennsylvania, say. So kind of minutiae of everyday life, the kind of things that maybe would potentially go unreported or even unobserved, you know, as we go about our day-to-day lives. So it's all pulled from real-time information taken from a wealth of different sources. In the city of Kampala in Uganda, the locksmith Jakey's Auto Uganda LTD will be closing in one hour. And the radio station is reported by a pair of -of state-of-the-art synthetic voices, whose names are Thomas and Nicole, um, very kindly provided to us by Eleven Labs, um, an amazing generative AI company who create these uncannily lifelike, human-like voices. The International Space Station is currently above Jamestown, St. Helena. Often we only hear about other places through the prism of news, which by definition only tells us about things that are unusual about those places rather than things that are usual, especially places we see as quote-unquote kind of troubled countries or troubled parts of the world. And it can be actually quite refreshing to hear that such and such a restaurant in Beirut, Lebanon, is now serving breakfast. I mean, that's actually, it's a really important thing to remember, I think. I'm really fascinated by websites like Radio Garden, where you can click a little button and listen to real local radio from Alaska or from Sierra Leone or from Iceland or whatever, and how your experience of of listening to that radio station is changed by your knowledge of, of where it's for in the first place. So if I hear Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi, and I know it's going out in Alaska, and then I hear it again and I know it's going out in Peru, I don't know, somehow I'm hearing the same song, but because of the kind of imaginative context for that, it sounds a bit different to me. It's all about this shared understanding of the world, you know, by being able to hear the perspective of other people in very different contexts or to hear about the micro-events that they're experiencing it just puts us into their shoes, allows us to empathise and hopefully is 
maybe supports this kind of fabric of shared understanding? I think those kinds of things are what really interests me about calling something a radio station and asking artists to do something specifically for that reason and why it's different to just kind of discrete chunks of audio content. This idea that when you press play and when you listen, you don't know who else is listening, but you know that they are out there. I can never quite shake off that magic and and the feeling that there's something behind it that's quite important. In Saipan, Northern Mariana Islands, it is a new day. Thanks to the lovely Holly Fisher for that interview. That was Seb, Amina, Daniel Jones. And you can listen to their whole project at 5radiostations.com. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. And we're back here with the curator. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We have a highlight from the menu now. It's all about Japan's culinary soft power. This time, Monaco's Copenhagen correspondent Michael Booth meets Mads Batterfeld of Sushi Anaba. To show the Danes how much beautiful fish that we have around, that's one big thing. And just to show how it should be, that it should be simple, it should be a good quality of rice, it should be a good quality of uh, fish and wasabi. Yeah, we do it. Uh, we do it in the traditional Tokyo way. We use dark vinegar. That's like a red vinegar. Yeah, dark red. Yeah, it's uh, made from the lees of the sake production. And the one we use is from Hyogo, and it's been uh, matured for seven years before they release it. And then we use a little bit of uh, Danish apple cider vinegar. Then we only use salt, no sugar at all. And you learnt this in a top sushi restaurant in Ginza in Tokyo. Yes. When, when did you first go there? But I went to Japan. First time back in 2010. I had a, a few uh, tours around after that. And to the restaurant at uh, Hakuku where I trained. It was 100% the, the simplicity. I'm trained in a, in a French kitchen where you can, you can always add on. And you want to add on. You want to put more f- deep flavors in the sauce. You want more thyme, more garlic. Or like You're built. And then uh, in the Japanese kitchen you try to remove but there's a reason why it takes years and years and years to train to be an Edamé sushi chef. And I wonder, explaining that to Danes and why they suddenly have to pay, uh, you know, 1,700 krona for their sushi instead of 350 krona. Yeah. How did you go about doing that? Because, it's, as you say, it looks simple, but it's not. No. <laughs> that was also one of my biggest... Uh, not issues, but roaring points when I opened the restaurant because I knew that we we're going to have a lot of these top food critics from Denmark. But for me, of course, I respect them, but I don't respect their opinion about sushi because obviously <laughs> they don't have any. They don't, they don't have any knowledge about it. So why should they come to my restaurant and teach me? Of course, they give us good, uh, good critics, so it was okay. And, and how about the general public? Uh, I think the general public was... Uh, very, very open-minded. And of course, in the start, we had a lot of guests who obviously been traveling to Japan yeah. and uh, had the understanding of how it should be. And we opened just before Corona, so a lot of people that were supposed to travel went to, to our restaurant instead of uh, to get the same, a little bit of the same feeling, a little bit of uh, being 
out of Copenhagen. And since then we had uh, quite a lot of tourists who's coming now due to we're only serving uh, Scandinavian seafood instead of most restaurants in the in the US or even in uh, in England uh, importing a lot of Japanese. Uh, so it's all locally sourced fish. Yeah, the only thing we have uh, we have tuna from uh, from the south of Portugal. How about the tuna that's now swimming in the Ursund, just a few <laughs> yards away from where we're sitting? I think it's exciting with with the tuna in uh, in our waters, but but we don't have the traditions. Again, we don't have the traditions to to catch and eat raw tuna. Sushi scene in Copenhagen is still a bit rubbish. Mm. I mean, maybe you can't say that, but I can. No, it is, 100%. Okay, you can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is, uh, Are you I'm a bit disappointed that you haven't like paved a way, or maybe you're, you're just happy that you have your clientele here, but the rest of us, we're a bit disappointed that it's just still a bit crap. Yeah. No, and I understand why it's crap, because it's uh, very, very hard labor. These places who sell it for very, very cheap money, of course, are maybe not paying the best money per hour, and it's just using a bad product. It's the only reason why you can make money on, on sushi because either you pay the staff very, very bad or you're using a very, very bad product. It's it's not possible to to serve it for less money than we are because it's just taken. We have four chefs working every day for 14 hours to serve... How many we serve? We serve 24 guests. Can I ask, does it make money? Yes, I do. It, uh, I think it's been very, very uh, important for me in the start that it needs to be a, a healthy project. The staff needs to be paid well. We need to keep our hours. And after that, we can see where, where can we develop. And uh, so we're in, in the kitchen now, and I can see you have all the beautiful tableware that you would expect from a top sushi yarn in Tokyo. Have you accumulated this? Where do you get your, your tableware from? <laughs> Everything is uh, selected uh, under trips. Oh, so it's all come in suitcases from yeah, Japan? Exactly, exactly. Um, the, after I was living there for a year, I brought 120 kilos back uh, from everything from like uh, working jackets to ceramics to shoes to, of course, knives and uh, pots sake and pans. cups, sake yeah. bottles. Out in the kitchen of Sushi Anaba, Mas Batterfield introduced me to Machu Kojima, his Japanese colleague. I asked him when he arrived in Denmark and his first impressions. I have to say, uh, Kojima-san was the epitome of Japanese diplomacy and good manners, so I couldn't get him to say anything bad about the sushi scene in his adopted city. Three, three and a half years ago. And when you first came to Denmark, mm-hmm. what did you think about Danish food and the Danes and Denmark? I think just a beautiful country, yes. Beautiful culture also. Yes. Yeah, yeah I like it. Yes. What, what about how they cook fish in Denmark? Herring. Uh-huh. You like it? Yes, I like it very much. The pickled herring? Yes, pickled herring. But of course, Japan have the same herring, but cooked the different way. What about the sushi you've eaten in Denmark? <laughs> As a sushi restaurant, um, of course, uh, different. That sushi also sushi. It's sushi. Yeah, it's but, sushi. But of course, yeah. of course, yeah, but uh, different. What, what's your uh, favorite Danish food? Smurble. Smurble. Yes, smurble. Yes. And your favorite topping on the smurble? Some pickled herring. Uh, uh, mm, sometimes pickled herring, and uh, it uh, smoked the eel. Oh yeah, mm. that's my favorite too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm. I reckon <laughs> No, I don't okay. care. <laughs> the Danes, living on hundreds of islands, surrounded by water. Mm. 
are eating actually less and less fish. Is that also an EU issue or is it a Danish government issue or is it just bad education amongst the Danes or are they just obsessed with pork? Is that is that the problem? I think it's a very, very bad education from especially my parents, the generation of my parents. And uh, we always had fish when I was at my grandparents. They were living close to waters. But if we had fish at my parents' house, it was 100% the fish fingers, the frozen fish fingers. <laughs> we do have a lot of very very good fish in Denmark and in Scandinavia I think the quality is for most of it it's the same quality as Japanese but the the other whole problem about that is in the in the EU, EU we need to freeze every fish to serve it raw really so everything you serve here raw has yes. been frozen yes except for the how to say the, the clams and the crustaceans again it's a lack of um, craft it's a lack of uh, intelligence and then we just say then we just make it worse for everybody. Are there things that you wanted to serve here that you've experienced in Japan that you just think the Danes are not ready for? I'm thinking of things like shirako, mm. uh, like cod sperm. Yeah. Do you serve those kind of maybe more challenging ingredients? Yeah, yeah, we do. We do. Uh, we do serve it when it's seasonal and when we can get it. And the same goes with uh, with monkfish liver. Yeah. We try to push our fishermen every week to uh, to to get it first, but. They're throwing it away otherwise. Yeah, aren't? yeah. Oh my god. Even though that we want to pay like the double of what a tate costs, it just it's yeah. just a Yeah, they don't understand it. Which I, I think this whole sushi anaba project is gonna take many, many years. Like they did with the Noma. It's not gonna be finished in five or ten years. It maybe it's gonna be t- twenty or forty years before we we see monkfish liver everywhere and uh, cut sperm everywhere because I think it's delicacy. If you treat it correct and if you serve it correct, it's 100% a delicacy. Well, I do hope sushi anaba is around for at least another 20 years, but maybe the Danes will learn a little more about handling, preparing and eating great seafood before that. For Monocle in Copenhagen, I'm Michael Booth. And finally on the show, for Meet the Writers this week, Georgina Godwin interviewed former editor-in-chief of Bloomsbury Publishing, Alexandra Pringle, who held the post for 20 years. Well, my father's Scottish, so that's half of me, but my mother was a Berber Moroccan Jew and her family, the Afriats, were very ancient pre-Babylonian Berber Jews from the Ufrain and they had caravans that went from Timbuktu to Essaouira, Mogador it was then called, carrying ostrich feathers and gum Arabic and spices and so forth. And they did this extraordinary journey across the Sahara. And then my grandfather... By the time it was his business, it was cotton from Manchester, hence the British connection, and indigo from Pondicherry for the Tuareg, the Blue Men of the Sahara. And so how much of this was present in your childhood? It wasn't when I was very young. My mother was very... She hated her father. She hated her family. She left home when she was 17. And she joined the ATS when the war broke out, just like the Queen. (laughs) And she drove officers around in cars. And she, she left it behind because her father wouldn't give her education. And she managed to go to art school after the war and get herself educated. Also, Britain was very, very anti-Semitic in the 1930s. And I think what she did was she passed. 
I was very interested at Virago in the Harlem Renaissance uh, novels by women like Nella Larson's Passing. And I think it was because I saw an echo of my mother in that. Mm, mm. So we didn't know. None of us knew until when I was 17, we went to Casablanca where my grandfather lived. He was dying. And he lay in bed and he said, give me an Arab and a camel and I will cross the Sahara. And we thought, this is really strange. Was literature a big part of your childhood? It was huge. I learned to read very, very late and it was a huge struggle. But the minute it happened, it was like this extraordinary event in my life and I just didn't stop. I was a terrible student. I failed exams all the time, but I read nonstop. And the defining book for me was my father came back from West Africa where he worked in the summers with a book which was Things Fall Apart by Chinua Chebi. And when I read that, I was 13 or 14, and it was like the whole world turned on its axis and everything was different. I think that book, probably more than any others, informed who I was as a publisher. And so where did you go educationally from there? Well, I failed to get into university. I didn't even get an interview. And my parents didn't know what to do with me. So they sent me off to a tech in Cambridge. It was then called Cambridge Tech to do a secretarial course. And I found that they just started doing degrees. So they took me on to do one there, for which I was incredibly grateful. It's now, of course, called Anglia Ruskin University, but it wasn't even a poly in those days. (laughs) So, yeah, my education is just pretty dismal, actually. But I met, I got involved in a poetry festival in Cambridge at the end of my time there and it completely lit me up and I thought, this is what I want. I want to work with writers. And you started working with writers at the very lowest level. I did. Well, it's the way most of us begin in our careers. And I didn't have a particularly grand feeling about who I was because I was this failed person, you know, so I felt very lucky to have jobs. And My first job on Art Monthly, I was paid £5 a week for five mornings a week and I had a room in Whitechapel with a lot of mice for £4 a week. And really, I was incredibly poor. Even then in the 70s, it was no money at all. Mm, I mean, publishing hasn't come on very much in terms no, of salaries. But a bit, a bit. <laughs> yeah. So tell us that, that you then moved on to Virago and this was the beginning of, of really what has become an absolutely stellar career. Well, yes, it feels like that looking back and I think, good God, was that really what I did? But it didn't feel like it then. You know, I was the office dog's body. I worked for Carmen Khalil, who was a genius, but she was a bully. And so it was terrifying and it was incredibly hard work. And I, because when you're bullied, you lose your sense of self. It was a long, slow haul. And I was very lucky because I had some incredible colleagues there, particularly Ursula Owen, who was co-founder with Carmen. And I learnt from both of those women. I felt I had two mothers, a good mother and a bad mother. (laughs) But I learnt everything about how to publish. And I slowly got to start working on the modern classic series and I'd read so many of those novels as a teenager because my mother had given them to me and so it felt like a natural home for me and I also worked on the covers so I had a sort of art background too and I loved learning about really particularly women's art from between the wars, little known and so it was an extraordinary education and I ended up being part of the management team, being editorial director and actually owning a little bit of the company. Mm. Just for the the benefit of listeners who who may not know exactly what Virago is meant for, just Mm. tell us a little bit more about the company. Well, Virago was founded to change the world. (laughs) Not the small thing. But back then in the 70s and in the 80s, women had no 
force within publishing and literature. Most of the important works by women had gone out of print and were absolutely neglected. I mean, obviously, you know, there was Virginia Woolf and there was George Eliot, but there were huge rafts of extraordinary works by women. And the Modern Classics series was there to bring them back to life and to really change the canon, to reinvent it. And then, of course, Virago did lots of new books, really important new books about politics and history and women's lives today. Mm. When you're editing a a modern classic, when you can't collaborate with the author who Mm. may have died, how do you do that? Well, the book is, the text is there. So what you're, what you're really doing is curating it. So you need to find somebody to write an introduction to give it its history, its place. And there were rafts of extraordinary women who worked with us. People like Susanna Clapp and Hermione Lee and Antonia Byatt and, and also men. Paul Bailey was a wonderful advocate of Elizabeth Taylor, who I think is a, is a genius. So those people were very important to us. And of course, it was Michael Holroyd who really had the idea with Carmen for the classic series. So we had great brains feeding into it. You then moved on to Hamish Hamilton. Yes, I was editorial director there for four years. And then you decided to take a completely different tack and you went off to be a literary agent. Well, that was because I didn't suit corporate life and corporate life didn't suit me. By the time I went there, I was 36. I think I was too old and too stubborn and too political with a, with a large P rather than a small P to take to corporate life. And I had an amazing time there. And I, I published Esther Freud's first novel, Hideous Kinky, and Tim Pierce's first novel, and, and people like Jenny Diskey. I, you know, I had, I had an amazing time and I learned a lot, but it, it wasn't for me. So I thought I have to reinvent myself. So I stepped up, which actually quite a few editors were doing at that time Mm. and became a literary agent because although you're doing it from a different side of the business, you're using the same skills and the same passion, really. Mm. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by San Impi and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening.